What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The market's still feeling a little nervous as the Fed gets more aggressive on tightening. The VIX is up. The transports are down again. I see a lot of red back there as markets broadly continue their sell-off. And there's a new wrinkle that investors have to digest. Now Dave Servos will be here to talk more about that. The surge in mortgage rates already hitting all things housing. Even Home Depot and Lowe's both down more than 20% this year. We'll talk to the analyst who nailed it when she downgraded them in late 2021. Plus, today is opening day in Major League Baseball, and it is pouring rain out here anyway. It also means it's the debut of the MLB games exclusive to Apple. Will that be a home run or a strikeout? But first, Dom Chu as stocks head lower once again, Dom. No Yankees Red Sox over here for opening day, postponed by weather, as you point out. But let's talk a little bit about the rain being poured on the markets right now. Multi-day losing streak for the major indices, the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. And they are in the red again today. The Dow Industrial is down about 150 points. We're not off the highs of the session right now. We're just off the lows. So generally speaking, it was mixed earlier on. The S&P 500 is 44.56, down about a half of 1%, 23 points there. The Nasdaq composite, 13,727. So drifting even further below that 14,000 mark, down a little over a percent right now. Kelly mentioned the transportation stocks. One of the big ETFs that tracks the Dow Jones Transportation Index is the iShares DJ Transports ETF ticker IYT. It's down one and three quarters percent right now. But more importantly, if you take a look at this leg lower, this is a seven day losing streak where it's lost roughly 13 percent of its value in just those six to seven trading days. So the transportation stocks a big focus because some traders and investors have looked at this particular industry group as maybe a possibly leading indicator for the overall economy and markets overall as well. So keep an eye on those transportation stocks. Two stocks on the food processing consumer staple side that are moving in opposite directions. Well, interesting now, we've got to change. ConAgra was lower on the day, now fractionally higher. Lamb Weston's up 6%. Frozen potatoes and vegetables, big processor there. They came out with an upbeat guidance and outlook that says that they are going to grow above their longer-term projections. So Lamb Weston shares higher there. ConAgra had been lower on the day because they talked about the margin impact of rising raw materials costs and transportation costs as well. So keep it on those food processors. And I'm going to end with one, Kelly, that I know resonates with both you and I. And this one gets a gold star because it is Costco up Ah. over 68% over the last year because it is sitting at a record high of $604 per share. And at the lows of the pandemic, it was roughly $260, $270. Just to give you an idea of how far Costco has run, March same-store sales come out much better than expected. Maybe a lot of folks looking to combat that inflationary macro backdrop by going and buying in bulk at places like Costco or Sam's Club and Sam's Club and, and, and yeah. Walmart. So it's something to kind of watch there, that consumer dynamic when it comes to that inflation. Narrative. I'm glad you highlighted Lamb Weston too, Dom. We shouldn't overlook that one. They have these amazing crispy fries in the oven that even I, they, they come out good. And again, if you have good product, you have pricing power right now. Uh, that's definitely true on the staple side. Absolutely. And by the way, if you might not even know that you're eating those Lamb Weston fries because 
because right, true. They're, they're, they're not branded if that you're, way. Yeah, or if you're eating uh, <laughs> elsewhere. Exactly. Dom, thank you very Bye. much. So the markets overall are acting pretty defensive lately. You see it in this consumer staples Dom was just talking about. But what about the two-year, 10-year yield curve? It's actually been steepening the last several days as the Fed turns much more hawkish. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard saying earlier that the Fed is well behind the curve and needs to hike substantially to rein in inflation. My next guest agrees. He's dubbed this Wolverine inflation, and he joins me with his playbook to weather it. He's Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management and Portfolio Manager of the Smead Value Fund. Bill, welcome. Let me start with a question that's going to pr- sort of be the theme of this entire hour. Used car prices are dropping. You know, people are wondering if we just wait this out a little bit, you know, can inflation normalize? The Fed doesn't have to be so aggressive. You know, we don't have to be so alarmed. What, what does Bill Smead say? Well, first off, you have to believe the progressive commercial. And most all investors have trained themselves over the last seven or eight years to believe that the millennials are a completely different group, that they won't want to get married, they won't want to have kids, they won't want to own homes, etc. So as soon as any difficulty arises, they run to the things that benefit from them being different than in the past and discard the things that the progressive commercial tells you you should buy. <laughs> okay, I know exactly which commercials you're talking about because we it's like the only commercial on TV I actually like about how we're all turning into our parents. Fair enough. So the most, co- I, I, you could say, controversial uh, sector pick of yours is housing. We're going to talk to Laura Champagne in a moment who downgraded Home Depot, Lowe's, and housing stocks back in the fall. And what was brilliant timing, they've been horrible performers lately. The multiples are terrible. The loan stocks have been a disaster. Why do you still like the home builders and continue to believe that housing can perform well in the difficult couple of years to come? Yeah, we, we have a different job than research analysts. They're paid by people to try to guess six-month swings. We, we have no ability to guess six-month swings, but we can look at five to 10 years out. So let me just give you a couple of statistics. There were 236 million people in the United States in 1983 we built 627 new homes, 27,000 new homes, and and uh, the average mortgage rate was 13 and a quarter percent for the year. Okay, now we have 334 million people. Last year we built 773,000 homes, and the market share of the five largest builders tripled during that time period. And if you look at the prior 10 to 12 years, we massively underbuilt homes. If you talk to any executive of a home builder right now, they'll tell you that they can sell every home they build, but supply chain issues and labor kept them away from exploding to the upside, which is just going to elongate the next five to 10 year cycle for home builders. So if you ask me how they're going to do in the next two weeks, they'll probably go lower. If you ask me, what do I think will do well? And by the way, the most controversial thing we're doing is we're way overweighted oil and we clobbered the index last quarter because we're way overweighted in oil. I don't think and that's Dawn controversial. About I, think, I think everyone yeah, wants yeah. to be long energy and long oil. But I think that your point about housing gets to a really important uh, point about the economy overall as you see it. And if you could dwell on this for a moment. Right now, there is more talk about recession than we've heard in quite some time. And the only debate seems to be about when. Is it going to be the middle of next year because of tightening or is it going to be before that point? Do you actually think or worry that we're heading into a recession? Because I can't imagine you'd want to stay long things like housing in that case. 
So we looked back at 94, which was an extremely aggressive Fed tightening year. And it was kind of a, a crumb dummy year in, in the market. Uh, and, and it affected things. But remember, Kelly, and I've talked to you a lot about this the last couple of years. We are putting to bed a financial euphoria episode that Charlie Munger describes as the wildest one in his 75 years in the investment world. So, so look, while we don't talk too much about the 80% declines in a lot of the tech and SPACs and IPOs and all that kind of stuff because we, we focus in on the fangs. Well, there's an old adage in the investment business. When the generals are marching forward and the troops aren't coming with them, guess what happens to the generals eventually? And that's where we're heading. It, they're not going to let all these growth stocks get away with high multiples as interest rates rise and inflation maintains itself. Right. But you don't you're not worried about the broader economy. So so if people a lot of people are coming around to your point of view on inflation bill and saying we understand this could be more persistent, broader based, a real phenomenon. Now the Fed's reacting. But are you concerned and positioning for a broader economic slowdown as a result of that? The extremely wealthy people are afraid that they're not going to get the game handed to them like they have the last 10 to 15 years. And people that make $15 an hour that are going to 20 or 25 are going to do better in the economy. Labor is going to win and, and real estate and commodities are going to win and price earnings ratios are going to contract. And if your portfolio isn't organized around that over the next five years, you're going to suffer stock market failure. So final quick word, give us a couple of examples. Uh, I know for sure that you guys are in Oxy, you like Continental, you like DR Horton, for instance. Can you give us a couple of other names in other areas you'd want to be exposed to? Well, yes, the, the, the uh, uh, Amgen and Merck have been trading way below uh, PE multiples compared to the S&P, and they're making a nice move right now. And, and uh, uh, the, the mall REITs, are suffering another collapse of economic confidence. There's 90 million millennials replacing 65 million Gen Xers. That's a whole lot of people to provide shopping experiences to. All right, so the mall REITs, housing, these are all the things people hate right now. And Bill Smead is giving us the case for him. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good to see you today. On that note, let's turn now to the bear case for housing. Rising rates have definitely spoiled the run of the once hot housing play, especially in the home improvement stocks. These were pandemic darlings. Lowe's and Home Depot, they're down more than 20% this year, but is the fix-it boom really over? My next guest downgraded both names to hold back in October, saying the end of stimulus checks and rising labor and material costs would lead to a slowdown, and it absolutely has. Let's welcome back Laura Champagne. She's director of research at Loop Capital. Laura, it's great to see you, and I don't know, are we pricing in your bearishness now, or do things are things looking worse uh, on the horizon? Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, there are a couple of things that I did not contemplate when I when I downgraded the stocks um, late last year, as you mentioned, and I did not contemplate inflation being this tough on necessities. I also was not thinking at that time of this massive swing back into um, events and travel. So we've got a bifurcated economy right now where people on the lower end of the income spectrum are so challenged, they're not thinking about big tickets expenditures. And folks who have money are thinking about their next vacation, are dressing up to go to weddings again this summer. Once again, their head is outside of the home. 
So lots of pressures that I wasn't expecting. Also, this mess in Ukraine just distracts the consumer. Big ticket home purchases. Typically, um, the, the woman of the household is a big decision maker. And I think she's nervous, not feeling great, not having those stimulus checks. So I think that there's probably more downside to come in this group. Yeah, we've seen similar commentary over at RH, especially uh, about a multitude of factors contributing to the uncertainty. Here you have a hold on Home Depot and Lowe's right now. I would have thought if you asked me last year that they would have a longer tailwind from the housing boom. I mean, certainly we bought our house four and a half years ago and spent the next couple of years doing a lot of home improvement projects Shouldn't we expect a similar tailwind from the cohort who just bought houses and will continue uh, to fix them up? The, the same demographic argument Bill Smead was just making for housing in the long run. Will that come back to the forefront at some point here? You, you know, you're probably not wrong, Kelly, but I, I think that that multiples are contracting. One thing you'll hear Home Depot and Lowe's say over and over again is that they're not as well correlated with interest rates, but their multiples sure are. So it may not be their fundamentals, but but you'll see people discounting them at a higher rate than they otherwise would. We think that Home Depot was probably smart to set conservative guidance when they came into this year. And because their business is a little more pro-based, I think they do have more of a backlog to work off. So maybe you get another decent quarter. But my guess is that the future tone will not be strong and, and that you'll see numbers coming in and multiples contract at the same time, which is a, a pretty, pretty messy setup. And that extends your arguments out. It sounds like for another three to six months, uh, you're also, you also have accelerating on Wayfair, which got another big downgrade today, a similar kind of housing halo effect story. You do have a buy rating on Costco, if I'm not mistaken. So could you put in context the struggles of the housing market with what you think is going on with the consumer more broadly? Sure. Costco and its, its half-price sister, BJ's Wholesale Club, are really big inflation beneficiaries, especially this pop in, in gas prices gets people to the pumps at Costco and BJ's. I recently did a, a West Coast tour in San Diego to Seattle and, and was seeing gas prices at Costco a dollar below where they were at, at other gas stations. That means more memberships bought at Costco, more consumers trading up into higher tier memberships at Costco, and very, very, very little churn, and more people going into the store while they're there to buy you know, half-price prime beef compared to what they would buy in a grocery store. Uh, so those warehouse clubs, big beneficiaries of inflation, not much else in my group is. Yeah. So Costco, BJ is one of the few places we like. And as Don pointed out, Costco at an all-time high today. So final question then, as you hear kind of the macro talk swirling about recession and, and consumer trends, what, what do you think is going on uh, on kind of just the top level? Are we just experiencing a shift in services? We've seen more Wall Street calls on this today saying this is simply a shift from goods uh, to travel, let's call it. Is, is That's a little bit more optimistic tale than one of a consumer who is just, you know, in way over their heads on inflation and pulling back more broadly. Sure. One of the few parts of consumer discretionary that I like right now is fashion footwear. So Steve Madden looks great to me. Calaris, which owns um, Sam Edelman and some other fashion brands, they look great to me. I think there is a shift in spending. I think there's a shift in spending to brick and mortar, uh, but also to your point, to leisure and travel services. 
I think with unemployment this low, it's going to be tough for the Fed to, to accidentally push us into a recession. Hmm. That said, I, I think you don't fight the Fed. I, I think there's more risk in the economy today than there was even three months ago. Well, there's Caleri's, uh, Steve Madden, a couple of stocks you mentioned. This is the, the snapshot of today's consumer in Costco. Laura, great to have you back. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Loop Capital's Director of Research. Coming up, it's opening day for baseball, and we're a little more than an hour away from the first pitch of the season. We will look at the surge in sports streaming deals lately and see who has the most on the line. Plus, the Fed is set to begin shrinking its balance sheet by nearly $100 billion a month. But in order to get there, they may need to sell mortgage bonds. Could that be spooking the markets? We'll ask David Zervos. The exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's opening day for Major League Baseball, and this season, Apple is getting in on the action. Starting tomorrow, you'll be able to catch select Friday games exclusively on Apple TV+. And it's not just Apple. Beginning in May, Peacock will be the exclusive home of a new Sunday morning MLB game produced by NBC Sports. Amazon, meanwhile, has made a big bet with its Thursday night football. And, of course, Disney already has plenty of sports streaming exposure through its ownership of ESPN. Meanwhile... Netflix has famously resisted adding sports. That stock is down 41% year-to-date, Apple down 3% meanwhile. But is baseball the right play for Apple's first big sports push? Tim Higgins is a reporter at The Wall Street Journal, and Ed Lee is assistant editor at The New York Times. They are both CNBC contributors. Welcome, guys. And Tim, I don't know. I feel Is this the right demographic for Apple? What do you think? Well, you know, I think it's an interesting low-stakes experiment for them to kind of dip their toe in the waters of, of live sports, right? You know, there's not necessarily a huge national audience for non-playoff games, uh, especially uh, for Friday night games. So they can go off here and, and try something, see what works, try some perhaps new tech features in the broadcast and see what happens. Ed, I mean, same question, which is, is this the right fit for Apple's existing audience or the audience that they're trying to grow right now, because baseball itself has faced viewership declines. They're trying to figure out, you know, what, what tweaks to make to, to make baseball itself more watchable. Um, and this is a little bit of a risk for them, because if they don't have a huge audience, they have to contend with their diminished popularity. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. This is a bigger risk for the MLB than it is for Apple. I mean, Apple has all the money in the world. Uh, and as Tim pointed out, they can sort of dip their toes in the water of this. The MLB is looking for younger viewers, right? So they figure getting on hmm. streaming is a way to do that. Um, and 
And for Apple, you know, their audiences, it's still growing. You know, it's really their services businesses that this would ultimately feed into. I thought it was actually smart that this is an exclusive deal where, you know, it's you can't watch it necessarily on, on broadcast. And so I think what's interesting is that it's getting harder for sports fans like me to be able to find out where they can watch things because you have to watch some of it Definitely. on Apple, some of it on Amazon, some of it on Peacock, et cetera. So there's sort of this sort of new fracturing that's happened in the sports market. So should we read this, Tim, as more of a push than a pull? In other words, the MLB saying, hey, Apple, we'd love for you to take this and give us that younger audience as opposed to Apple, you know, begging for it. Yeah, you know, it seems like Apple in this case probably has uh, some of the leverage here. Uh, they've got a great audience uh, of iPhone users across the world uh, if it's an experiment. You know, the, the, the challenge really, though, in this kind of content creation is that uh, regional sports, uh, this is where this is dominated. Baseball has dominated for the, in the regional level. It would be local, the number one uh, programming uh, in local TV on a, on a Friday night, perhaps. But nationally, it's really hard to imagine how the, the Mets-Nats game is going to appeal to everybody on the West Coast. Though it, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing Scherzer. Uh, you know, so the, the challenge here is going to be in some of the content, I think. You, you saw today the announcement of who some of the, the uh, broadcasters are going to be. Uh, younger people, uh, uh, Katie Nolan included. Mm -hmm. uh, she has uh, quite the following online. So, you know, maybe they're willing to experiment. Ed, this is, as we've said, now we have all the major streamers except for Netflix kind of deepening their move into sports. It's just the beginning, though, isn't it? I mean, I feels like we should expect a lot more of this and maybe even from Netflix itself at some point. And I don't know if you saw Sherman's write up today, but the UFC, some of these, I mean, Disney looked at them in 2016 and wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, somebody making a play here. Yeah, I, I think Alex's article was actually really well done. Uh, UFC has been a huge sort of driver for services like ESPN Plus, for example. So I think sports or sports related content is, is going to be key for all the streamers, including Netflix. I think Netflix sort of is tangentially entering that space through gaming, right? I think that's what they see as their sort of future, at least in terms of how they're branching out. Sports is something they tend to stay away from. It's live. There's going to be commercials next to it, ultimately. Uh, you don't really own it outright, even if you have the exclusive window around it. So that all these things play against the sort of the Netflix playbook. But again, it's such, such, still such a huge viewership driver that I don't think they could ignore it entirely in the future. Yeah, I don't either. We'll see, you know, between that, ad-sponsored, they have some big, big moves to contend with still in the couple of years to come. Tim, final word, what, how do we view Apple's success? I don't imagine we're going to get, will we get uh, audience streaming numbers or is it their version of that? Or, or what does success look like for Apple here with the MLB games? I think success will judge success if they start doing more deals. Uh, if we see them uh, get into the NFL, there's some talk that perhaps they're in the running for the Sunday ticket package. Uh, that could be a big get for them. Uh, you know, also then there's the N NBA in the future. Uh, you know, lots of speculation that they might have interest in that down the road. That could be very interesting as well. Yeah, although, Ed, they'll have to have deep pockets. I mean, these, these payouts from Amazon on the football yeah. side of things, what does that tell you? Well, Amazon clearly is very committed. I mean, they, they started just doing these non-exclusive deals on Thursday Night Football. Now they're going to be or they are exclusive going forward. So I think they're realizing more than the other streamers that like you really need to spend big in sports to really fully own it. Again, it's still fractured who owns what piece of the, the season. So success for Amazon will be, well, they're going to spend more. They're going to try to own more football, for example, going into the future. Of course, that's a bigger discussion, you know, and that that contract has already been sort of signed it to years ahead. But as you pointed out, NBA and others, 
that's something that we want to take a look at for, uh, going forward. Very interesting. Yeah, it's hard hard to find as a viewer. Harder than ever. Uh, I will right. definitely say that. Tim Higgins, Ed Lee, thank you both very, very much. We appreciate it. Still ahead, even while consumers reel from inflation, Kathy Wood warns that raising rates would be a serious mistake. Up next, we'll hear the latest from her on why and her views on high-tech growth stocks. Case in point, the auto sector is slowly getting back to normal. We've got new numbers on inventories, prices, and EV demand. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map, pretty evenly split uh, between gainers and decliners. Walmart and Merck leading the way, Visa and Boeing, the biggest laggards. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back, everybody. Look, the Dow and S&P are trying to go positive right now. The S&P is down two points. The Dow's only down 29. At the lows, it was down 305. So a huge comeback. And notably, this is happening even as interest rates continue to rise. You see that's still exerting pressure on the Nasdaq, which is down half a percent. But this comes as the 10-year this afternoon has moved up to around 266. Some of the other movers this hour, watching shares of HP Inc. hitting an all-time high and flirting with their best day since 2013 after Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway revealed a $4 billion stake in the tech company, making it the largest shareholder, HPQ, up 16% today. J.P. Morgan analysts saying Buffett may be trying to repeat his success with Apple, which the company started buying in 2016 when Apple shares were trading at a low of nearly 10 times earnings. HP trading around eight times earnings today. Here's the chart of Apple. That's obviously worked out quite well for Berkshire in the past six years. Meanwhile, semiconductors are lower for the third day in a row with every component in the SMH negative now year to date. We did previously have one holdout and the ETF is on pace for its worst week since early January. Marvell, Skyworks, Universal Display, Corvo, some of the biggest laggards. The decline's not huge, though. Let's get to Eamon Javers for a CNBC News update. Eamon? Hey there, Kelly. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Two black former NFL coaches have joined a lawsuit alleging racial discrimination during hiring by the league. The suit was filed by Brian Flores, a former head coach of the Miami Dolphins. The new coaches are Steve Wilk, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, and Ray Horton, who coached with the Browns and the Washington Commanders. Boy Scouts will be able to describe their activities as scouting without referring to gender specifically. A judge has thrown out a case brought by the Girl Scouts saying the move was creating confusion among possible recruits and damaging the Girl Scouts. As a result, that lawsuit was filed in 2018, a year after the Boy Scouts said girls could join their troops. And in Augusta, Georgia, Tiger Woods is back at the Masters. He teed off this morning 
roughly a year after that bad car crash that could have cost him his leg. He started the day with five straight pars, a birdie and another par, so not bad. He's currently tied for 10th at par. On the news tonight, why do some people get COVID and others don't? A look at natural immunity tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, back over to you. Amen, I'll see you in half an hour. Thank you, you very much. Still ahead, our next guest was watching for one key detail on the Fed's balance sheet plans in yesterday's minutes. He heard it and he says that's what's taken the markets by some surprise. We have that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. A slew of Fed speeches one day after the Fed minutes showed the central bank is planning to start reducing its $9 trillion balance sheet at a pace of about $95 billion a month. But they may not be able to hit that figure through passive runoff alone. Will the Fed soon have to sell mortgage bonds? Is that spooking the markets right now? And will the financial system ultimately have the capacity to absorb it? Joining me now is David Zervos. He is the chief market strategist at Jefferies. David, it's great to see you again. And why is this distinction so important? You're not the only one who's been listening closely to see if sales could be in the future. Yeah, Kelly, early in the year, I think we highlighted this idea to our clients that uh, asset sales could become part of the mix. And I think, you know, last time they weren't, uh, the Fed really drifted away from that, even though there was a lot of discussion of it in the early days of QE1 and 2. And, um, you know, they, they've added $5 trillion worth of securities in two years. That's been the, the primary method for creating this accommodation. And, um, I think it's it's important to talk about the balance sheet and think about the balance sheet uh, when you're when you're unwinding it when you're doing your QT and I think they made it clear that after some time they're going to consider that they may not do it but I think just considering it is probably a slight shock to the market and that's why the ten-year yields have gone up I think in the last 24 hours nicely and the curves re-steepened out we were I think two's tens got to about minus eight right and if I looked at it earlier Kelly you've got it in front of you I don't but I think 20. it's you know. Plus 20, yeah. So that's a pretty hefty change uh, in, in, you know, 30 bits in the curve, just like that. Is it a sign of success? I mean, if two important things have happened here, and Ian Lingen at BMO pointed this out, that the Fed started getting more hawkish when 10-year break-evens went above 3%. 10-year break-evens are off their highs, 5-year break-evens are off their highs, and the yield curve is steepening. So that would seem to be early signs of the market now validating finally the Fed's hawkishness. And is it the balance sheet in particular you think that has delivered that victory or is it just all of the measures put together? So first of all, I think, you know, it, it's a it's a big I, I find it a mistake to look at these, particularly the short end break evens. But even the 10 year itself, there's a, a two year, three year window here now that I think is we know inflation is going to stay and has been staying quite high. So the Fed's going to look at five year, five year forward. We've talked about that on the show a bunch of times. That really hasn't moved, you know, in the last 18 months. It's been two and a quarter, give or take 20 bips either way. So Fed, Fed credibility on the inflation fighting front, as much as people want to bash it, has not really budged. Um, you know, we've got the surge. We know we've got the surge, whether it's supply side or demand side remains to be seen. Um, but it is there. Uh, but the long term, the long end inflation expectations in the New York Fed survey, the Michigan survey and the break evens tell you that people aren't really worried about a sustained problem in inflation. So I don't think that's it. I think the really question is, you know, and I remember we talked about this when we first wrote that note, Kelly, it's there's two punch bowls. There's the balance sheet punch bowl and there's the short rate punch bowl. And we're trying to figure out which one they're going to use more of and how they're going to uh, kind of remove punch from those various bowls. And I think we got a look on Wednesday, <clears throat> excuse me, 
at the idea that maybe the balance sheet punch bowl after some time could become uh, a more interesting place rather than the short rate punch bowl to take some of that accommodation away through asset sales of agency MBS. And so the so let's kind of back up for a second. They want to tighten the balance sheet in part because they just are trying to find ways to basically slow the nominal demand boom we're seeing. So they are they want to do $100 billion of tightening a month, about 60 from treasuries, 35 from mortgages. But ironically, because of higher rates, people aren't going to prepay their mortgages as quickly as they once did. So the Fed may not be able to just allow those securities to run off and hit the 35 billion number. The, all of this said, Dave, even if they had to sell, they'd be starting, what do you think, with, with fairly small numbers? Is, is, is there a risk that these numbers could become too much for, uh, for dealers to handle? Well, you know what's funny, Kelly, is just making an announcement that you're going to do something and then trying a little bit of something and all of a sudden it works and it's successful. All of a sudden, you know, that, that can have a big impact on the market, one. And two, if it works, you say, well, maybe I can do more. I mean, nobody really knows. We didn't try asset sales last time, really. Uh, so I think it's just the market was much more prepared for a balance sheet story that was, OK, passive runoff, leave it alone. We're going to focus on rates, just like the 2015-16 liftoff period uh, was was put into play. And here it seems a little more nuanced. This is a different balance sheet unwind. And I think that's an important distinction from yesterday. This is one where we might see the Fed come in and, and sell assets. And that opens a door to something new. And I think the market is thinking about how to price that a little better. And by the way, Kelly, you know, I don't like to talk about what I think the right thing or wrong thing is. I just like to talk about what I think the Fed is going to do. And this is something we did think they would do. But there's a great argument for getting rid of some of these assets a little bit faster. We have a really big balance sheet. We started pre-COVID with a balance sheet that was at 18% of GDP. Now it's at nearly 40% of GDP. And even if we just let runoff go for the next year or two, we're still going to be way above where we were pre-COVID. So we have a big balance sheet that really doesn't make a ton of sense in an economy with a 3.6% unemployment rate and a big miss on inflation. Let's boil this down to the markets, which you've been, I don't know if I would say bearish, but certainly cautious, uh, warning us yeah. that the Fed put is nowhere near where it used to be. Um, you know, the, that hedging this market has been difficult because of what's been happening with bonds. That We can't really trust uh, the Fed to be the hedge like you kind of previously would have felt comfortable doing. Where are you now on equities and on uh, the recession slash downturn risk in the, for the months to come? I think the near term risks on recession very low, very low. I, I think the Fed could engineer a small recession in 2023, and that actually may be a good thing. Maybe one day one of the government agencies in Washington, D.C., which forecasts everything five years ahead, whether it's the CBO, the OMB or the Fed, uh, will actually forecast a recession. I don't think any institution that forecasts the economy in Washington has ever forecast a recession within five years of their forecasting horizon or at any point. in time. So which is sort of a, a strange thing in the end. But nevertheless, I would say um, the risk will increase next year. We have a super strong job market. We have a super strong housing market. Um, yes, rates will ding that up a little bit. And you're absolutely right. They want to bring aggregate demand down a little bit to fight off some of this inflation. But I don't think that's this year's worry. In terms of markets, Kelly, you know, we we came out kind of, you know, in a, in a more of a buy the dip strategy, which was selling covered calls, like one year covered calls on our S&Ps um, and taking some premium, about 8% on that, I think. Uh, I kind of like getting along the market down 10% or so. And, um, you know, I'll stick with that view. That's worked out pretty well so far. Those, those calls have protected us when the market went down a lot and, uh, you know, paid, paid, some of the, paid for some of the losses. And now, uh, 
Now I think that trade still looks pretty good. It's been on with us for four months now. And it's a very different trade for me. It's not a particularly bullish trade, as you're right. I'm, most of my time I've spent trying to tout the, the upside. I really think the upside this year is very limited. I think the Fed's working against you. I think QT is just a tough mountain to climb. Uh, and it's, and it's going to be a difficult year to see uh, any kind of material gains in risk assets. And we will leave it with that clear, if somewhat discouraging point. Dave, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. David Zervos with Jefferies. Coming up, the Nasdaq continuing to lead the markets lower, down 3% just this week. The tech slide has pressured Kathy Wood's flagship ARK Innovation Fund. She tells us why the Fed is making a mistake raising rates and will reveal the fintech name she's selling after this. Welcome back. NASDAQ underperforming again today. It's down half a percent as the other major averages try to go positive. And it's down more than 3% this week as rising rates have pinched once more. That's hitting the ARK Innovation Fund, which was the worst performing U.S. equity fund in the first quarter, according to Morningstar. Kate Rooney uh, sat down with ARK Invest Kathy Wood at the Bitcoin conference in just the past hour. And she joins us now with some key highlights from that conversation. Kate, it's good to see you. Kelly, good to see you as well. And so no matter where the ARK ETFs are trading, I got to say, Kathy Wood is still very much a celebrity with the Bitcoin crowd. We had people lining up behind me here for selfies before we started that interview. But as far as the underperformance year to date so far, she compared ARK to a publicly traded venture capital fund. She says it's still a long-term bet and that the retail crowd tends to understand that long-term vision better than some of the institutional investors. Part of the pain so far for those high growth names this year, like ARK's actively managed funds, has been the Fed, higher rates. She tweeted recently that the central bank is, quote, playing with fire and that it's a mistake to raise rates. Uh, She does expect growth and inflation to surprise on the downside and says the Fed may be missing some of the micro data. We're looking at consumer sentiment down at levels uh, we have not seen since 08-09. Think about that. Record-breaking employment reports. Record-breaking. Unbelievably good. And yet the consumer is feeling terrible. 08, and no one's talking about this. The headlines out there from a macro point of view are not picking up those micro signals, nor are they picking up the consumer sentiment surveys. So we're just looking at the facts and we're looking at all of the data. She also argues that technology will have a deflationary effect, although that might not happen overnight. And we did get some news here at the conference out of Cash App. That's from the company formerly known as Square Block at this point. The company letting people invest their paychecks directly into Bitcoin, as well as adding something called the Lightning Network that uh, allows instant payments. That is ARK's sixth largest holding. ARK notably uh, sold, though, all of its holdings completely got out of PayPal, which, of course, it's Venmo, is a big competitor to Cash App. Kathy Wood says PayPal might still be a winner in fintech at some point, but the ARK analyst had higher conviction on Block, in part because of Bitcoin. I think the way Cash App is growing organically, as opposed to more of a top-down, let's get this thing moving, stretch, stretch, stretch. I think there's an organic movement. I think it's going to be uh, is going to be fired up now by Bitcoin. Kathy Wood still bullish on Bitcoin. Bitcoin itself, as well, she says, like those Ark ETFs, it's a long-term bet. Kelly, back to you. Kate, very interesting that she 
sees now that Venmo story, I mean, look, if she's selling it, she's she's kind of saying it's over. For, for one of the biggest believers in these stocks and these stories and in this sector, that's got to be a, a, a tough one to swallow for Venmo and for PayPal. Yeah, and she really pointed to the organic growth of Cash App. She talked about you know things like the Bitcoin conference and the idea that people just want to sign up versus PayPal having the initiative of saying, you know what, we've got to go and launch this this app to really compete with Cash App. She described it as Venmo following Cash App. So they said, you know, it could be one of many winners, but they have a lot more conviction when it comes to what Block is doing with Cash App and uh, especially when it comes to Bitcoin. But yeah, that is tough news when it comes to PayPal. Yeah. Kate, thank you again. Uh, great to see you again. Kate Rooney down in Miami for Bitcoin Miami with the new crypto bull. Still ahead, used car demand is dwindling, but prices are still sky high. We have the latest figures and what could bring prices down? That's next. Speaking of which, check out the national average for gasoline prices. $4.15 for a gallon of regular. That's about $1.30 higher than it was a year ago. We're still down about 18 cents, though, from that March 11th high of $4.33. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Supply chain challenges are still there for the auto market, but there's some glimmers of hope for buyers. New data from CarGuru shows new car inventory jumped nearly 9% in March from February. Now it's still down 62% from last year. Prices are still climbing. But for more, let's welcome in Kevin Roberts. He's Director of Industry Insights and Analytics at CarGurus. Kevin, welcome. How big a deal is this month-to-month uh, -month rise in uh, available new cars? Hey, it's it's great news uh, after you know dealing with basically a year straight of uh, declining new vehicle inventory. So, absolutely great to see. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's still a lot of room for growth coming back, and we're still likely going to see continued supply chain issues for the better part of this year. In fact, you push back your normalization view now to basically we're going to need until the fourth quarter of this year. Is that right? And what what does normal look like, by the way? So the normal says we're going to get back to what, what we would expect full production to be um, out of our plant. So it looks like, you know, the initial thought was second half of this year uh, was hopeful for the third quarter, but it looks like that production might not really pick up until the fourth quarter of this year. However, you know, while those numbers aren't going to be at that full level, they are expected to continue to increase over that time. So hopefully we should be seeing better new vehicle inventory levels here. Uh, for additional months to come. So you're focused on that production figure to kind of get back to where where we were or where the market ultimately needs to go. Let me ask you the million dollar question everyone's wondering, Kevin, what's going to happen with prices? Are they going to drop at some point ever or or not? Uh, so it, it's, it's going to be a different balance between new and used prices. Uh, but yes, expectations are that prices are going to come down. Uh, now, when that magical date is going to happen keeps you know being up for debate. Um, but we, you know, hopefully once we get past this kind of traditionally strong demand season uh, for new news vehicles with round tax returns, uh, the hope is that we might start to see some vehicle price relief uh, after that time. So a year from now? Uh, no. So in the next couple of months. Wow. So uh, we're, we're, we're in that tax, tax high tax return season right now, which traditionally leads to some really strong demand for both new and used vehicles. And so that demand uh, should hopefully, you know, as that demand starts to kind of come down, we should see prices decline. We're already starting to see used wholesale prices start to decline as well. So that should hopefully start to make its way through to retail prices here shortly. I wonder what that's going to mean, though, for consumers, you know, a lot of whom who have bought cars the last couple of years that they don't really want to see prices drop. Not like they're trying to flip them. They're not houses. But I'm just saying, 
What impact do you expect that to have? And what impact might it have on buyer behavior right now? So it, it could be a really good thing, especially with rising interest rates uh, coming into the marketplace. Uh, it could hopefully offset uh, some of those rising interest rates, which can put upward pressure on monthly payments for consumers. And additionally, we're not expecting any kind of rapid decline in vehicle prices. Uh, you know, it, it, this demand is still really high for both new and used vehicles. So while we may see some softening in prices, it's not going to be a sharp uh, decline. What, what do you think the auto market looks like a year from today? It, it's really kind of interesting question of how much does vehicle production pick up? Uh, new vehicle demand is depressed, I would say, right now from where it could be if we had full vehicle production and full you know, inventory out on dealer lots. Um, so expectation is that as new vehicle production picks up, uh, we'll see new vehicle sales recover quickly, more quickly than inventory. Uh, so we're still going to be in a transition period, likely for the next year. All right. Well, transition uh, with some glimmers of hope for buyers, at least, and, and some signs of normalization. Kevin, thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Kevin Roberts with Car Gurus. Coming up, it's not just Russian oil. Europe is now weighing a ban on Russian coal. We have the impact on prices and the ripple effect it could have across the energy supply chain right after this. Welcome back. Coal prices are climbing as Germany signals it would be open to a European ban on Russian coal imports. Pippa Stevens is here with the details, the fallout, and what it could mean for U.S. producers, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Not something you would expect to hear in 2022, but coal prices are surging. The EU depends on Russia for 70 percent of its thermal coal, which is used for power generation. And now officials are considering banning imports. And this comes as power prices in Europe are already at record levels. The U.S. could make up some of the difference, and that's boosting prices here. Central Appalachia coal is at the highest since 2008. Illinois Basin coal topping 100 for the first time, according to S&P Global Market Intelligence. These two regions are seeing the most dramatic increase in price since they have easier access to international markets. The U.S. is already sending more coal across the Atlantic. Last month's exports were the most since October 2019 and up 30% compared to the prior year, according to Braymart. Now, those numbers are expected to be even higher this month. Large U.S. producers include Peabody Energy, Console Energy, Arch Resources, and Alliance Resources. But contracts are often long-term, meaning these players might not capitalize on high spot prices right now. Also important to know, Kelly, that this is within the broader context of declining coal consumption. And does, you know, again, looking at the shares of PT, uh, BTU, for instance, still down from where they were maybe four years ago, is that because that secular story still looks troubled even with these latest price hikes. Yeah, coal is on the outs, that's for sure. No one really disagrees with that. Some even say this is a double-edged sword because these really high prices right now will just fuel transition to other fuel sources because nobody wants to pay these really high prices. True, there is an alternative. There's, you know, every passing year, more and more. Pippa, thank you. We appreciate it, Pippa Stevens. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.